Peace, dear friend. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. If you would like to join the conversation, you may uh, email us. Uh, and that's the only way to join at the moment uh, is email. And the email address is jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. We were in the middle of talking about unemployment and where it came from and what was going on in the world at the end of last hour. And I wanted to uh, give a more localized update on that. Um, the Texas unemployment rate is at 8.3%. Uh, and sales tax revenues for September for the entire state are down 6.1%. So what we were before uh, last year at this point, so September of 2019, our unemployment rate was 3.5%. We're at 8.3% now. Uh, and as of, uh, as of October 10th, 3.6 million Texans have filed for unemployment since the pandemic started. So that's, that's real. Um, and it's really hard for people, even even when they're in the middle of it, when even when they're somebody that maybe got laid off or are unemployed, to look at the scope of this. <coughs> Excuse me. How uh, you choked up? Right, say that again. You choked up on the scope of it. Yeah, and the scope of this is big. Uh, and you got to you got to throw in there the fact that that 8.3 unemployment does not count people who are self-employed. Texas is a very very high level of self-employment. Right. One of the, one of the highest small business ratios in the country is here in Texas, and this is one of the issues that I am most concerned with for the Texas economy is that at the state or at the federal level, something needs to be done to preserve the small businesses in Texas. Small businesses that were profitable and had good reserves. They were doing everything right when the pandemic hit. Uh, these, are, these are businesses that over the years have paid a massive amount in taxes. I just want to underline that multiple times. This is the difference between borrowing, borrowing to pay money out to people when you're never going to get anything back from it at the governmental level or borrowing to give to people so that they can maintain a business and pay more taxes in the future. You've talked about this before, but it's very true. When we have a major national disaster, we have an earthquake or a, we haven't had one of those in a long time, or fires or hurricanes go through, and an emergency is declared and the federal government comes in to small, specifically to small businesses and gives them a tremendous amount of assistance. And, and if you get a series of hurricanes, which we haven't had in a long time, it wipe out businesses over and over again. The government traditionally goes in again and again to grant money to these small businesses to keep them alive so that they can rebuild in that area. We are having the equivalent of a series of hurricanes that has now lasted eight months and probably will last 12 months in the United States. And it's really important, in our opinion, that we that the federal government act. And I really don't understand the reluctance in the Senate. I, I understand the reluctance. I really do. I understand it. There are there's a group of people in the Senate that think that all debt is bad, and then there's a group of people in the Senate that think that all debt is good, and there are extreme opposite ends from each other. The reality is that if all debt were bad, almost no one would own a home. If all debt were bad, most people would not have a car. The appropriate use of debt needs to be understood. Uh, if you don't understand the appropriate use of debt, if you just say all debt is bad, it will limit you and anybody that you teach. Uh, if you say that all debt is good and that you never have to pay it back, that's just as bad. The two ends of the spectrum are both really, really self-damaging. The reality is that for most people, some debt is good, and for most governments, some debt is good. Egregious amounts of debt is bad. So when we when you were saying I don't understand why they don't approve of this, there's about the same number of people in the Senate that think that all debt is bad as there are members in the Senate that think that all debt is good. And the all debt is good group 
and the all that is bad group together make up about 40 votes <clears throat> out of 100. Well, we got another question from a listener. And in today's uncertainty, you're recommending your clients to maintain a higher cash position in their portfolio. And the answer is not higher than we normally do. But we do recommend we have something that we put into portfolios called dry powder. And we normally, it's just kind of a general guideline under most circumstances, um, we say about 18 months of short-term bonds and cash in a portfolio is a good idea. Why? 18 months of income in short and liquid. This is an important thing. The question is, are you recommending more than normal? No, we're not. We're recommending at the same time to have about the same amount and keep those reserves high. Go ahead. The way that's handled normally, traditionally, is in, let's say, what we call a 60-40 portfolio where 60% of the money is in, 60% of the value is in equities and 40% of the value is in bonds. Normally, that works pretty well. Because the bonds tend to rise when the, historically when the market goes down and vice versa. The problem now is that bonds are paying next to 0% interest. Having bonds in the portfolio doesn't help your return, doesn't help much of anything. As a matter of fact, it could hurt your return a lot if interest rates go up, and I think they probably will at some point. So having short-term bonds, which are nearly like cash, and cash in your portfolio is a good position right now, and we recommend that if you're taking in, if you're taking income from your portfolio, having 18 months of anticipated need in in liquid positions, cash, short-term bonds, money market funds, is a really good idea at any time. And right now, if you anticipate needing more in the future, if you anticipate needing more, you should have more in there. Uh, so we're not saying more than we normally do, but we're certainly saying more cash and short-term positions in there than most brokers recommend and most investment advisors recommend. Right. So, yeah, keeping reserves up is something that if you listen, I mean, I recommend it. Go to our website, look at, uh, listen to a radio program from last year randomly, and you will hear us, now is the time to build up your reserves. Things are great. You'll hear us saying that multiple times per episode last year because that's when you build your reserves. Uh, it's too late when the collapse already occurred. You don't build your reserves after the fact. Now, did we know that there was going to be a pandemic? No, we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic. But there's always something. Yes, sir. Having... You know, we used, to, we used to use this, and I would use it again if I were talking to young people about investing, and I think Jake probably uses it. I use the term having your corn in the silo. There's three things you can do with corn. You can eat it, you can plant it, or you can put it in the silo to be saved for next year. And you should have a reserve in the silo to cover all of next year farmers. And actually, we're saying a year and a half is the standard. In many cases, we're saying more because people are saying, well, we might want to buy a house or we might have this happen or we might have that happen. But what we're not having keeping the rest of it. In, so we break the portfolio down into asset preservation and asset appreciation. And your asset preservation should be plenty to cover you through an historic major decline in the market. It's that simple. Yeah. You don't want to be taking money out of the market when the market is down. Right now, the market is up, relatively speaking unless you're in the value side, in which case it's still down. Um, but we anticipate, and there's certainly no way that we can predict whether this will happen or won't happen. But the market, the stock market is in a position right now, not at all unlike where it was going in at the end of 1999. It looks very much like it. There's a tremendous amount of trading by small investors. As a matter of fact, they constituted 25, let's say a couple of weeks ago, they constituted 25% of the total trades in the New York Stock Exchange were made by people who are trading tiny penny stocks or trading in fractional shares. That is uh, something like a record, which is the last time we came, we were that high, again, was the end of 1999, the beginning of 2000. We have just a few major stocks that are growing like mad because of the pandemic. This is important to understand. Those stocks are growing like mad because of the pandemic. When the pandemic ends, and it will end at some point, Will those stocks continue to grow at ridiculous rates? And I'll answer that one very simply. No, they won't, because you can't – trees do not grow to the sky. There is going to be a correction at some point. Yeah. And so now is the time to make sure that you have your reserves set. 
so that when the correction comes, you don't, and you're trying to take income from your portfolio, that you're not taking it out of equities. Now, I'm going to change the subject, if you don't mind. Is Might right? as well. Sounds good to me. There has been, I like the, the, the word disruptor, because that's like every new tech company in the last five or six years has to have the label of disruptor. Um, there's been a lot of disruption in the financial industry over the last half a decade or so from new companies that are coming in and they have, they allow the ease of trading and low expense trading. And the, the new model was based on this concept of you don't need a lot of people to talk to, to get your trades done. You just need to, to go online or on your app on your phone and just push the buttons yourself and the trade will be finished. You don't need to talk to someone to do it. That's the premise. They're having some growing pains. And by growing pains, I mean lots of pain. Uh, Robin Hood is probably the, the poster child for this kind of disruption. And they've had three days, the biggest market move days, where their system has just stopped working, where people couldn't put trades in at times when lots of money was riding on putting the trade in at the right time. Because they started out as a little firm, and they scaled up, and they had they did not expect the pandemic either, either, but Robinhood became used by millions and millions of extra people in the middle of the pandemic that were bored and that have never done trading before. So suddenly they went from disrupting and make it easier to people that know what they're doing to doing easy but very complicated and dangerous trades to people that have no clue what they're doing. And so they've, they've had some growing pains in that area. Yeah, on October 12th, Bloomberg started reporting that uh, some Robinhood users were watching as their accounts were being liquidated and sent off to someone, and they couldn't stop it. And they, and they would, there's no emergency line to call at Robinhood to go and say, hey, there's theft in progress. Put a stop on this stuff. You have to send an email. The thing is that their staff hasn't increased at the speed or training required for this massive amount of new customers. They have millions and millions of new customers. When a few years ago, they were talking about a, a good client base was like 100,000 people. They've got millions of them now. And this was a very, very fast uptick. Well, that was the 12th that Bloomberg started talking about, hey, there's a problem. And on the 15th, Robinhood has now estimated that hackers have infiltrated about 2,000 of their accounts. And those accounts are getting liquidated. The email responses that people have received in this emergency situation is, we received your email and someone which should be getting back to you in the next couple of weeks. So that's a, gr a growing pain issue. The whole premise of these companies was you don't have to talk to people. And it does allow a much more efficient trading system. But much of the safeguard that has been built into almost everything, and it's bureaucratic. Don't get me wrong here. There's problems with it, and there's plenty of room for disruption. And Robinhood's done a great thing in that they've lowered trading costs across the board. But at the same time, part of the infrastructure in place of having someone to talk to in an emergency when somebody is stealing your stuff, that's extra expensive compared to a, a totally cheap platform where you don't have to talk to someone. So they're having to hire more people, which in a pandemic is a good thing in that they're hiring people. The bad thing is that if you're some of the people who got into the system with absolutely no clue going in, this is a problem. You don't even know where to start. And hopefully Robin Hood will make this whole, will make you whole. If you lost thousands of dollars, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, hopefully Robin Hood will come in and say, hey, sorry about that. Somebody hacked you. Um, and that's one of the issues that those older investment companies out there that have you know, people involved, they charge more but they still have some of these old safeguards. So there's this balance to walk. 
of the bleeding edge of technology. It really is the bleeding edge. I prefer to wait a few years before starting to use the newest of the new when my money's in it. Um, that's not always been the case. I, I was a customer of the very first online bank. It was called bankdirect.com. And I thought it was going to be a huge thing because everybody was going to go online. Everybody has gone online, but it's, they've stayed with the same bank as they did it. I switched bank and this was, I don't know, 20 years ago, right in the middle of the dot-com uh, thing where everybody's going to be doing this and look at the future. And I haven't gone back. I went to online banking, but it, there were growing pains. And I made a decision that next time I do this, I'm going to wait for a company to be around a little bit longer before jumping on. And that's kind of the underlying factor here. New technology is fantastic. But the very first issue of new technology might have some bugs still in it. And the fact that Robinhood, the bugs in Robinhood aren't the software so much as the lack of people working there because that was the whole thing. That's what it was all about. There you go. That was my Robinhood uh, conversation and disruption conversation. I think it's important that we have this going on and that people are developing newer and better ways, faster ways of getting trades done, of getting money transferred from one place to another with safeguards so that your money isn't transferred to someone that it doesn't belong to with no recourse. We have another question from Stephen, which is a really good one. It fits right in what you were talking about, about a proposed financial transaction tax. It was discussed during the debates between the Democrats as to who was going to be nominated in it. If the Democrats were to sweep Congress and the presidency, I think it probably would be enacted. Uh, we already have a financial transaction tax, and people don't even notice it's two cents per $1,000 traded. Um, and it's there. It's paid by the broker-dealers when you make a trade, uh, and they generally just kind of ignore it because it's so small. The proposed tax is one-tenth of one percent, which basically would say – uh, something like 20, you'd have to be able to make a $20 per thousand, uh, $10 per thousand dollars is what that really boils down to. It is, would be relatively insignificant compared with other costs that are associated with, with trading. But what it would probably do, it wouldn't probably, in my opinion, I don't think it would affect, you want to know what effect it would have on retirees and investors. If you're a regular investor or a regular retiree, probably next to no effect at all on you, what it would do is would tax what's called high-frequency trading, which are computer trades that are done in milliseconds or microseconds. And they're, that's the majority of trading volume in the New York Stock Exchange right now is done by computers trading based on tiny, tiny, tiny little differences in price. And it would affect them because if they, if they were paying a uh, $10 per thousand charge uh, for doing trades and they have to do two trades per transaction, that would definitely affect them. And it would raise the congressional budget office estimates would raise about a trillion dollars in 10 years, yeah. $700 billion. But this volume goes up, it's grown up to about a trillion dollars in 10 years. I don't have any, we already have a financial transaction tax. We are just talking about raising it a little bit. And most countries outside of the United States already have, England has a financial transaction tax about that level. And it doesn't seem to affect their trading significantly. I don't think it would affect trading. I think it might slow down the high-speed computerized trading that sometimes goes a little causes the market to go a little crazy when somebody has a fat thumb. Yeah, or those flash crashes that we talk about sometimes. Those are high-speed traders all trading at the same time. It may give them a little incentive to not be quite as fast. Now, on, on the surface of that, you said you don't have any objection to it. It is a method of making money for the government. I don't like friction in trades. It's like a value-added tax or a sales tax on top of what you would already be getting for capital gains and so on. We do need to raise taxes at some point. Oh, yeah, I said it. With the kind of debt load that we're working up, we either need to cut way, way back, and there's a very limited area that we can cut back in the future, or we have to raise taxes, and that's no fun. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm an advocate for higher taxes. Don't get me wrong. I prefer having lower taxes. But if we want to have a viable government, at some point they need more revenue. And Wait. when we look at history, this is what happens in history. When they've got enough debt, they raise taxes. We expect a strong defense. We expect to be paid as we age. We expect to have Medicare pay for our hospitalizations. We expect to have... Uh, 
the we expect to have Social Security payments. We expect a lot from our government, plus the fact that we expect the FBI is going to be functional, the CIA is going to be functional, and all the other agencies that we think are important to be functional. And I am of the opinion we should pay enough here to cover the basic activities of the government. The government, we expect the government to do certain things. I think we should pay enough in taxes to have the government do those certain things. Yeah. In bad times, the government should be able to borrow money to cushion the collapse of the of the economy, which is wonderful. We tried not doing that and got the Great Depression. Um, and in good times, taxes should rise to pay that money back. It's that simple. And, and, then, you, and then once you got it paid back, taxes should just go back to the level of first, we need to have a rainy day fund. I think Texas does a great job at that. They, they're balanced budget every year and add money to the rainy day fund in the good years and lower taxes if we've got a really fat rainy day fund and plenty of revenue. But then when bad things happen and we use up the rainy day fund, we need to replenish it. And I think that is – so when we're talking about a transaction tax, I don't like the nickel and dime approach. I don't like let's make the tax code incredibly complex and put some extra taxes over here, and we'll do a strange new variant of a tax over here. Let's go back and simple. We've got too much going on. Let's simplify because it costs money to figure out complicated taxes. It costs more money to figure out the complicated tax sometimes than the actual tax. That's kind of like that's kind of the reason I like the transaction tax. We have a sales tax in Texas. That's our primary means of revenue. It works really, really well. Uh, in effect, having a small, tiny sales tax on investment transactions would not, in my opinion, hurt the market, and it would not, in my opinion, hurt uh, regular investors. But it makes sense if we're going to raise some money to have a small sales tax on on securities. And we've got three questions hanging out there. I noticed that. Uh, I'm going to hit the first one, if you don't mind. In addition to the ant and the grasshopper, or somebody, uh, this is John. He's he's uh, one of our most faithful uh, uh, question askers. We really appreciate you, John. Don't don't apologize for asking questions. We really appreciate you. Um, the uh, what other some what are some other fables that ring true? Um, there's a biblical one, Daniel, in Egypt, uh, the the seven year famine with seven-year feast beforehand, so save some. Uh, the old tax scheme of the Old Testament, so this is Judeo-Christian. What? what was that? Joseph in Egypt, Daniel was in Babylon. Oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry, Joseph. I'm Joseph in many colored coats. It's a seven-year famine seven before seven years, or after seven years of feast. Uh, there's There's an old Norse, very common saying in the Old Norse language that has been co-opted by Game, Game of Thrones, which is simply – it's a very simple statement. Winter is coming. Um, Game of Thrones co-opted it, and now everybody hears Game of Thrones when you say it. But this is a this is a thousands-of-year-old statement because sometimes the winter lasts for three years up there, uh, especially when in the Middle Ages when there was an ice age going. A little mini ice age was hitting, and, and they had – no summer for three years. Uh, that means you, if you were going to survive, you needed to save. So there's there's a lot. And we man, we've got more questions coming in. It's like the the uh, there's a lot of people sitting at home with their computers. That's nice. Somebody is actually listening to us, which is scary. Uh, the next question is uh, or statement is, uh, I believe your dry powder philosophy also supports the buy low, sell high investor theory when one is drawing from their portfolio. I believe the draw comes from equity portion during good times uh, and cash in bad times. Does that make sense? That's that's the essential concept that we, we try to follow. We're not trying to time the market and sell before a drop because you can't really tell when they're going to be. Who, who could predict a pandemic in advance? It's actually not too hard to sell when you see the market going down. Yeah. Really hard to get back in at the right time. That's in the over time, market timers are the, of, as a group of investors, they have the worst performance of any group of investors. The best performance, by the way, is the buy and hold people who just ride out the bad times. So, yeah, I thank you, um, Alan, for, for that question. It's, it, that having reserves on hand so that you can go to those reserves when you're not producing, and it kind of fits in nicely with the question we had before. What other 
thing do you have there? Well, don't eat your seed corn. That's a good statement that you hear a lot yeah. of old farmers saying, don't eat your seed corn. Uh, it's important to recognize that we have this throughout our culture. Uh, in the old way of doing things, your harvest season was only one season out of four. So if you were going to eat, you didn't eat it all in that season. <laughs> you might have a feast. That's why we have Thanksgiving. That's why in other places you have harvest festivals and feasts, because you do have some stuff that's going to go bad if you don't eat it. But you better make sure and save that stuff so that you're not hungry in the spring. Um, yeah. So I think that kind of wrapped up those two. We have another one, Hacking. What is Hacking by Tom? The got at, another one as well, yeah. The hacking of uh, Robin Hood, for example, wasn't because somebody broke in, broke through their firewalls or whatever. Most hacking, as a matter of fact, is a result of phishing, where somebody sends a, an email and it purports to be from your employer or somebody and said, click this link and ask you to give your password and you give your password. All it takes is one person to do that. And then the hacker has got the information to break into the system. But the people who, uh, who at Robinhood who are having their um, – who've been investigated so far who were having their accounts completely emptied out were people who had inadvertently given away their password. Right, and here's, here's how it happened. Many of the people that are doing their investment app or their online app also are on different channels online posting about their trading experiences. And if you click on them, you can see what their email address is. It's pretty amazing. And if you send them an email address saying, hey, this is Robinhood, because you know what Robinhood emails look like, please click this link and log in. It's a, it, they're one of the easier folks to hack because, well, everybody says don't follow the link in an email. But during the business day, I probably get four or five emails that I need to follow the link in. Um, and, and what that says is you need to understand what the link is that you're clicking. And at some point, our security needs to get better. But mostly, don't click on a link from an email to log into any of your money accounts. If I get probably at least once a week, I'm a member of USAA, and probably at least once a week, I get an email from somebody from, it looks exactly like an email from USAA, and it says, click here and log in. There's a, there's a problem with your account. Your account's been frozen or something to that effect. The answer to that is to go to US, in my case, to go to USAA.com and look at my account and see if it's been frozen, not click the link in the email. It's, it's a shortcut to click that link, and it'll get you in a lot of trouble. Don't do it. Yeah. That, is, that is the way most hacking occurs. Um, I've got another question here. How do you check the reputation of a company that handles 1031-like property exchanges? Well, first, let me say to the listeners, thank you, Lin Linda, for the question. What's a 1031? A 1031. Oh, man, why is it that the government has to give these things numbers as their names? I'm going to do a 1031 on the 557 where I'm going to do the – I'm sorry, folks, but a 1031 no, – go ahead. We never do anything like that. We say we need an RTQ uh, yeah. for the uh, IPS. We use acronyms instead of numbers. <laughs> wow, that's much better. Yeah, wow. Um, a 1031 is when you own a piece of property, <laughs> a real estate property, whether it's a house, raw land, something like that, and it's been appreciating over the years. You've got some gain in there, and you're going to sell it. And you also want to buy another piece of property, and you know what that property is in advance. So this is, these are all important factors. You need to know the property in advance because there's some specific rules to follow here. If you follow those rules, you can take all the proceeds of the sale of the first property and, in, and put it into the second property without having to pay the capital gains tax on it. Not yet, anyway. When you sell the second property, that capital gains tax should come due. So just be aware that that's out there. There are organizations that go out and look for property because you have to know what property you're going to buy before you sell. That's the only way you can do this properly because you've got to get the paperwork done in advance to get this to work and you've got a very limited time period to do it. 
So if you're selling one property and buying another property, but the other property is like a group purchase type thing, you have to arrange the closing, whoever's buying your property in a very tight fashion. So this is one of the things that's very difficult about this. So the question is, how do you check the reputation of a company that handles 1031-like property exchanges? The very first place I always look in these things, and I know this is old school, is the Better Business Bureau. If they don't have a record there, if they're not involved there, it's, a, it's, a, it's the first thing that I say, all right, there's something weird going on here. Then I Google them with the word scam in the Google, in the Google search. And I know that's not a specific thing because you're going to get lots of results. And then I read them carefully to see if it's a real scam or if somebody's just really upset because they stayed on hold for three minutes instead of two. Um, and I read through that stuff. The biggest and best way to do it is to know somebody else that's been through the same system with that firm already. That's not always the – it's not an end-all that because a Ponzi scheme, all the people that win in the Ponzi scheme are going to tell you all about the good things about the firm they're with, and it's all great. When it comes to a 1031, you need to hear from somebody that's been through the system before and how well they helped with the forms and the documentation because it's a complicated series of transactions that have to take place and they have to take place the right way or you wind up owing capital gains and you don't have the money to pay it with because you've already reinvested it in new property so just be aware that there's you, you need to check and see how well it's done in the past so go ahead Stephen had a follow-up question about the proposed transaction tax. If he takes a four percent withdrawal every month from his portfolio, would he? How much would he be paying in taxes? The answer is you wouldn't be paying the taxes directly. The broker-dealer pays the taxes, and if you dig down deep enough in any fund or any anything that you do, there are transaction expenses that are in the market, and a one-tenth of one percent transaction tax would be a significant number of dollars if you're taking, if you do a million-dollar transaction. It will not have really significant, but there'll be a few dollars. But when compared with the expenses that the broker-dealer actually incurs just to do the transaction, it still is insignificant. Now, I know broker-dealers are like uh, Robinhood are doing it for free, but they're really not doing the trades for free. They depend on the fact that people have, for example, money market funds in there where they hold their money when they're not trading it, and they charge them 1% a year on the money market funds. Or something like those so sweep accounts are places where broker dealers broker dealers are the actual platform where the trade occurs, whether that's e trade or uh, TD Ameritrade or it, you can go down Schwab. All of these places are a platform. That's how you're getting to the market. Some of those platforms are what's called introducing broker dealers. That means they actually do the trade on the market directly on the market for you. And then there are just the broker dealers that use another broker dealer to do the trade. And those trades tend to be, believe it or not, more expensive when there's an extra middleman. So understanding where you're paying is something I have never met an investor that's been able to tell me where they're paying money all the way across the board. In fact, we keep discovering places where investment companies and broker dealers charge money in ways that are very hard to find. Um, both of us have been surprised in the last year to find some fees on money markets that just were right off the charts weird, uh, high, and there was nothing barring the movement to a competing money market fund that had a lot lower charge. It just happened to be the default on a trading platform. That's one of the dirty little secrets of Wall Street, I suppose, is what money market funds charge. You really have, for instance, Morningstar, if you go in their regular subscription, you try to look up a money market fund and trying to find its charges, and they don't list them. They don't list the money market funds. There's a lot of money made by the fund companies. There's a lot of money made by the broker-dealers in places that you don't know about. There are no nonprofit broker dealers. I know Robinhood claims no transaction fees, 
but uh, then try to trade a bond or try to put your money in a short-term bond fund or try to put your money someplace in Robinhood other than strictly buying stocks. And you'll suddenly, if you dig deep enough, you'll find out there's some substantial fees there. Robinhood is not a nonprofit. A lot of people. I got a question uh, from. I already got that question from Stephen Dawson. John asked another question about social media platform section 230. If Congress changes this section of law, what will the long-term price impact be on these stocks? So it could be huge. Yeah. Basically, 230 so, says there's no provide use of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, which means you can't sue Facebook because somebody put something on there that was defamatory to you. Not, not only this, 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 this goes beyond that. It's not just Facebook. It's also your internet service provider that you used to access, say, Facebook. Yeah, and it would have it would have a dramatic effect on the price of the the communication stocks if they could be sued because somebody sent you an internet that was bad, or sent you an internet sent you an email that was bad and it offended you, and it was evil and it was false, and they sent it to a bunch of people, and then you could sue all the internet providers that transmitted that email, which would be it would be extremely, yeah. extremely damaging to the system. Let, let me read this section. There's a little piece in it. Oh, man, everybody's gonna, eyes are going to glaze over and start drooling. He's going to read the section of the, of the, the, the law. It 47 says, Yeah, uh, it says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service. So think, what is an interactive computer service? shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Okay, so that means if, if right now, if you wish to sue Facebook because your, your mean uncle called you a name on Facebook, you can't do it because Facebook didn't say it. You also cannot sue your internet service provider or the email company that sent you a copy of the Facebook message or any of those other people because this, this is the name of the law, the Communications Decency Act. The reality is that you're still allowed to sue the person who said it about you on Facebook, not Facebook. So if somebody writes that, that, uh, that you eat turkey with your nose, and you say, hey, that's damaging to my business. I sell chicken, whatever. You're allowed to sue them if you want. You're not allowed to sue Facebook, or you can sue them, but they'll get it tossed out because of the Communications Decency Act. You're not allowed to sue your internet service provider, which sent the email to you or had it go through their system to get to you. So what would happen if that got changed? Well, it would have to be changed in a way that was pretty egregious. The reality here. There, there is a piece that we have to look at here. Every day on YouTube, let me look up the exact number of hours that are uploaded every day on YouTube. Um, just a second. Hours uploaded on YouTube per day. Okay. Um, this is from 2019 from YouTube. Uh, every hour, every minute, more than 500 hours are uploaded. So think of that. If there are many, many users on YouTube uploading videos, every single minute, 500 hours are uploaded. YouTube needs to police that video. They need to make sure that they're not talking about really nasty things or inappropriate content that you you know that that's not following the rules of YouTube whatever necessary rules that might be how do they do that if each minute there are 500 hours of videos uploaded that is like Netflix marathon impossibility there's no way to keep up so there's a limit on how many people they're going to hire just to watch videos they're trying to rely on AI but there's a limit. If, if you're providing the content, it's very different than the radio. If someone calls the radio program and we don't have a little red button to bleep them out when they say a wrong word, there's fines that can occur. But there's a limitation on that liability. Go ahead. 
Section 230 was basically, if you look at the notes with the law that went with Section uh, USC 47, paragraph uh, 230. In 1995 and in the 1990s, when Internet was coming into existence, it, the issue in passing that law, which would be considered by the courts, was to keep the FCC from being thought police like the Chinese have done over their Internet. The FCC, the, the, the action that is concerned about uh, Section 230 being changed, that would take an act of Congress to change Section 230. But the FCC has been asked by the president to reconsider it, to uh, restrict its use, and to basically allow the FCC to oversee the Internet and allow certain things to be blocked and other things not to be blocked. And I think that is downright scary. Yeah. So here, here's the one that would come close to actually touching people that are listening to this. If anyone has ever created a blog site or been a member of a blog site, if you, if you have, please raise your hand. Yes. If you write a blog and someone comments on the blog, even if the blog was written eight years ago and you haven't checked it in a very long time and somebody writes a comment on your blog post today, with Section 230, you cannot be sued for what they say. Without Section 230, you can be. So it's not just social media. It is everybody. And we we don't want the FCC, which is a, by definition, a political, a set of political appointees. We don't want the FCC to be able to step in and say, "You can say this and you can block this, but you can't say that and you can't block that." Other than the Communications Decency Act, which is generally non-political. And so, the, if if you're a Republican right now, you may not like the fact that Twitter and Facebook block certain. Um, certain posts by the president, certain things that are done, and that's what this or by the, the any presidential candidate, right? But when the in the Republicans, when Republicans control the FCC, which they do right now, they could put it, they can force some things through. But the problem, if you're a conservative and you don't like that, what about if the Democrats are in charge? The Democrats will eventually control the FCC, and you don't want them turning around and doing the opposite. You just want the government – frankly, you want the politicians staying out of controlling communications. You want them off the map on this thing altogether. Enforcement of the law should be left to the people who are apolitical. Even though nobody's truly apolitical, we require people to act apolitical. I mean the military is not allowed to have political rallies because we don't want – the military to become a political entity that happened in Egypt and now they're in charge. And we only have about 11 minutes left in the hour. So we probably ought to do some commercials. Yes. Uh, Cooper, we're going to play some commercials in a second. If you would like to join the conversation, we get lots of emails. We appreciate it. Um, the email addresses to send to our Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. We'll be back on the other side of these, uh, I'm sure very important commercials. With about eight minutes more of the Personal Wealth Coach this wonderful Saturday, the 17th of October. Something important happened on this day 47 years ago. Really? Yeah. Do you remember that day? I do. I remember it very, very well, but I, I think it's important. Yeah. Your older brother was born. Yeah, my older brother was born, and we're going to have to call him and say happy birthday. That's probably a good idea. Hey, I wanted to throw one other thing in there that's, I think, very fascinating. There is a new sea lane that's opened up during the summer that is changing world commerce. Are you aware of that? A new sea lane? Right. Uh, I am aware of it, so go right ahead. Large quantities of raw materials are being, particularly raw materials and some manufactured materials, are now being transported across the north side of Asia through area that historically was frozen deep in sea ice. 20, I mean, 12 months out of the year. Also known as the Northern Sea Route. This is, this is a great plan by a lot of early explorers, but they were stymied by the fact that there was a lot of ice up there. And it's going, basically, you can move from the Pacific, where Russia has a great deal of uh, raw materials, all the way over to European Russia, 
and you don't take an icebreaker anymore. You can just take a regular ship and sail across and drive across there during most of the summer and deliver your goods. And it is dramatically reducing the cost of delivering goods across the northern European line. The Northwest Passage is open, but it's not quite as efficient as uh, the other as the other way of getting across. There's more islands on the Northwest Passage, so they have to zig and zag a lot more. But in the Northwest Passage, is relatively shallow water, so the biggest tankers can't go through it. But there's also more trade opening up to avoid the Panama Canal going around the northern side. The, the polar ice cap is shrinking enough each year now that we that it is now a reliable trade route, which up until now throughout the history of sails and, and ships, this was not a reliable route because in the summertime it was generally blocked by sea ice. For those of you who don't believe in global warming, all you got to do is look at the routes of commerce and say, right. yeah, the northern polar cap is melting. What, what I will say about the, that subject is that climate change is very real. We, we can look at the, the content of the atmosphere and see how that is having a greenhouse effect and so on. And it's probably, uh, probably being very, very high probability of, of human contact with the environment that's caused it it's not necessarily a horrible thing in every situation uh, it's going to be more temperate in texas it may be hotter but it's probably going to rain a lot more um, but if you're living on the coast you're going to spend some money on getting uh, dikes and levees and possibly movable dams and venice just came up with they, they just finished this week they're floating levee. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. They've just, you know, every high tide, uh, Venice has had little bits of flood. And then the really big high tides or the, the storm surges, they, the, this beautiful historic city just goes underwater. And they have a big floating levee that they can control. And it was mostly designed by the Dutch, who have a little bit of history with levees and dikes and floating locks and things. We've had a number of hurricanes, named hurricanes this year. We're going to see probably more of them, and we'll probably see higher sea levels as time goes by. That's just the reality of what is going is happening, not going to happen, but it is happening. But it's a it's a significant mile marker for those. There was a time a few years ago when people said global warming didn't exist. A lot of people said that, and it actually does exist very nicely today. And the fires in California are at least partially uh, attributable to global warming. I know the president suggested it was just a matter of mismanagement of the forest and may have had an effect. But that's but the, that didn't happen in Australia as well, and that's the thing right. is that it's happening all over the place. It's not just mismanagement in California. What about Oregon or Canada or Washington or Alaska? Uh, th these are forest mismanagement everywhere. Uh, well, no. It, there's there's a there's a change that's occurring, and as that occurs, we just need to factor it into our business plans, factor it into our living plans, and develop plans on what we can do to compensate or maybe even benefit by climate change. I want to throw a piece of good news in there. It dates all the way back. The problem with economic information is a lot of it comes in way after the fact because it takes a long time to gather. We used to be really happy with that, but we also get almost instantaneous information at the same time. And since they both are published at the same time, stuff that happened a month ago and stuff that happened last week or this week, it's really hard to sort it out. But in September, we had a 1.9% rise in retail spending in the United States, which sounds really important until you look at the fact that the slowdown in economic activity that we're concerned about most has occurred in October, the last two weeks. So September's numbers are kind of behind the curve. September also reported that the average, the, the Commerce Department reported that the average income of an American family in the United States dropped 2.7% in September, even though the retail spending went up. That means that probably when we October information, which would be deep halfway through November, uh, we will see that the retail spending dropped again this month because if you have less income coming into your family, you probably wind up spending less money. That's generally the case. It's a pretty good statement that if you have less income, you're probably going to spend less money. There's another thing. Unless you're the government. 
and that is if you're on Social Security, you're going to get a 1.3% raise this in 2021. That make that should make you relatively happy. Now, if you're on Medicare Part B at the same time, you'll lose 40% of that raise to an increase in Medicare um, premiums. But still, money comes in. A little more money always helps. And we are about out of time for this week. Thank you very much. We had a a, a massive amount of interest on the email side of things. I don't know. Usually that only happens when it's raining outside and people are stuck inside at their computer. We appreciate all of the questions that have come out from, from all of you. And uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting. Uh, we actually do give personalized fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth. We have voicemail waiting during the weekend locally at 254-947-1111. You can reach that same voicemail or real life people toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Or you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. Uh, on there, you have all kinds of our philosophy, our newsletters on there going back quite a ways. Uh, you can read about how we do business. Uh, you can also listen to recordings of this program or sign up for the newsletter. Uh, you can contact us through the contact form there, or you can email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And until next week, this has been 